to Sharp Scratch, episode 52, Allyship. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we bring together medical students, junior doctors and expert guests to discuss all the things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but you might not get taught at medical school. I'm Nikki and I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm a medical student at the University of Manchester. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm excited to be joined today by my good friends Callum and Laura. Callum, do you want to introduce yourself first? Hi, I'm Callum. I use he and they pronouns. I'm a non-binary final year medical student at the University of Southampton. Great to have you with us again, Callum. And Laura? Hi, uh, I'm Laura. Uh, I use she, her pronouns and my uh, university is University of Cambridge and I am a cis straight ally. Thank you so much. Great to have you with us, Laura. Um, and I'm delighted to introduce our expert guest, Eli Fitzgerald. Do you want to introduce yourself, Eli? Uh, so hello everyone, I'm Eli, I am a HIV positive trans man and HIV and transgender human rights activist. Delighted to have you with us, thank you so much for taking the time to join thank us. Thank you. So today is another episode of our LGBTQ plus mini-series of Sharp Scratch episodes that Callum's helped me put together as part of his elective. And today's episode is all about allyship, so sort of what an ally is, how to be a good ally, both to our patients, but also to our colleagues or our peers. In these episodes, we really want to be representing as many different people and hear from as many different voices as possible. Obviously, we have some limitations in terms of people's availability and episode length, but do get in touch if you can think of anyone that you think should be involved in these episodes, because we're really keen to keep this conversation going. So first things first, then, what actually is an ally? Callum? What would your definition be? Well, I think the word ally is thrown around quite a lot. And I, I think it's useful to try and sort of pin down exactly what that does mean. So people don't sort of just get to call themselves and say, right, I've done that now. So I feel like an ally is someone who is stood in a position of advantage and they use their relative power to advocate for someone who is vulnerable or marginalised. So that can run in a few different ways. It could be a cisgender person advocating for trans rights. It could be a white person who is being actively anti-racist. Or it could be a doctor or medical student who stands up for their patient. And it calls for us to sort of take that power or privileges that we have and put that into action for someone else. I think that's already a really good definition there. Laura and Eli, would either of you want to build on that or reflect? I think it's worth recognising that allyship is a spectrum and there's lots of people who call themselves an ally whilst also recognising that there's always room for improvement and room for improving allyship. So I think that once you once you claim to be an ally, you're committing yourself to a journey of, of learning and listening and improving how you do advocate for others. Um, but also recognising that someone might for the first time claim to be an ally and continue to be in a place of mostly being quiet and mostly listening and learning before they're in a position to have the expertise and uh, to to be able to advocate for others effectively so I think there's there's a spectrum here too. I think that's really important so at what point would you say that someone could call themselves an ally is it from the point where they make the decision that they want to be or is it after, is there a certain amount of sort of learning that you think we need to have done beforehand before we can sort of put that label on ourselves Eli what do you think I was gonna so I'm thinking more of just a willingness to want to learn and to want to accept and and going beyond acceptance to really embracing the community that you want to support and maybe be an ally to um which everyone should be an ally to everyone because that's the only way forwards right um 
But I think there's there needs to be that willingness to learn, but also a baseline understanding of these are the hardships these people go through, these are their strengths, and to always big up the strengths and to always be there to support the hardships. And I think that's sort of what the sort of education aspect of being an ally should entail is just wanting to do better. Yeah. And I don't think there's such thing as like a passive ally. I don't think it's something which you just sort of just get to give to yourself. You know, put, like, for example, we have rainbow badges and land arts. You don't just get to put that on and suddenly you're an ally. There has to be some steps of going through learning, going through talking to people, being uncomfortable and seeing how you can help that particular community from them. Yeah, I think being the from the very first baby step of saying, hey, I want to learn about the challenges at that point, maybe. The peop- the group, the, I think it's really important to recognise that it's that being an ally is whether the group that you want to support and advocate for recognise that what you're doing is helping them. And I think there's so many like blunders and mistakes you can make to get to that point. And I think it's really valuable to start from a place I want to be an ally and recognise mm-hmm. that actually you don't get to state to state that you are necessarily. I know that I did in my introduction uh, more as a more as a way to say that I am am friendly and open. But really, the recognition comes from whether you are putting the group you're supporting ahead of yourself and whether that's recognised by them. But I think up until that point, you might say, I want to be an ally and allow others to see from your actions whether that is helping them. But anyone anyone can start that journey. Yeah, that's really interesting that Callum, I think you mentioned a bit about how it's not just a label that someone can throw upon themselves. I I was wondering, because we've all mentioned lots of different like good things that you can do to be a good ally. But what other sort of things? Can you be a bad ally? Is that is that something that you could end up being sort of by accident? So I have a friend who I invite to do a lot of sort of the projects I work on. And she's straight and cisgender. And she always says to me that she doesn't want to... um, monopolize the space with her own voice and it's something which I think is a really good mindset to have is when you go into an area are you taking up the space of the minority who you want to support or are you amplifying the voice of the minority who you want to support because there's a difference between the two and I think working out which one you're doing and that little bit of reflection is really important yeah I think that's really important Eli just noticed you sort of nodding along there as Callum was speaking in your experience what makes someone a good or a bad ally i think definitely the whole not taking up space but also giving space to people giving platforms to people who need it um is is a vital step and 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 i know especially as a trans person people often tend to want to talk on my behalf um and it's normally cis people and it's normally under the whole um this is because we don't hear enough from trans people or trans people are hard to reach. And it's like, they're not because I'm right here. Um, You know, so there's a lot of of allies really need to just push to give people those platforms they deserve to have and to help make Mm -hmm. these safe spaces safe again. And what does that feel like from your perspective if people are sort of trying to speak on your behalf? Do you feel like if it's coming from a good place or they might have good intentions and they're just sort of performing it not very well how does that feel i think sometimes there's definitely good intentions and sometimes it really does help like in healthcare especially like sometimes i can't even talk on my behalf so i'm gonna need somebody else to do that for me and it's normally it is normally a cisgendered person who does have a thorough understanding of who i am 
um, which I find helpful, but like publicly, when people start talking about trans people, um, especially in HIV, um, when they are cis and you hear some of the words that are a bit like transgendered or transgendering and you sit there and you're like, oh no, this is not going to plan. But I know that the, the intentions are good, but sometimes the wording is wrong. And that's, I think, why trans people really need to be at the root of, of these conversations, but are often missed. I think that's um, a really important point to make for sort of our audience, especially, is when you're speaking with um, you know, in this particular instance, a trans person, find out how they want to be spoken about, find out how they want to be referred to, find out, you know, from them, how do they see themselves and let that guide you. Because some just saying that a patient is trans doesn't give you a huge amount of information about who that is as a person and as an individual. And I think if you're just going to sort of reduce someone to that individual label and say, right, that's that you're going to miss a lot of the details which go into being a good ally and helping that person. That's really important. I think it's interesting because hearing you say that, Callum, it feels so obvious to just ask someone how would you want to be referred to or things. But I can't remember which one of you it was who mentioned it earlier now, but someone said something about to be an ally, you need to be in positions where sometimes you feel uncomfortable or things like that. So how would you suggest that you frame that conversation? How do you know that that's an appropriate thing to ask? And how would you go about asking? So for me, I, I often, when I'm going in to meet someone, would say, the file says Raymond, for example, but how do you like to be addressed? And that gives you sort of a way in. When they then introduce themselves, I can then introduce myself, I can give them my pronouns. And it, you don't have to make it, you know, like you're pulling teeth. You just have to create the environment where someone feels willing to disclose that information to you. And then when you have it, you stick to it. And if someone gets it wrong, you correct them. Eli, would you want to add anything to that? I think, yeah, it's all about making, especially in clinical settings, it's about being the safe space um, and, and making that safe space. But often, and I found like when I go to see my doctors or when I go to HIV clinic, it doesn't matter what room I'm in, <laughs> which can be the safe space. It sort of matters who I'm seeing and, and how much they're willing to learn from me, but also remembering that I am not there to be their teacher, um, which is a very important part of something I've discovered being trans, is medical professionals really rely on me telling them about trans people when I'm there trying to get their help, which has always been a bit awkward. So especially entering a room where there's clinicians who do ask for pronouns, they ask for, like, preferences of names and all that and it, it just generally makes the environment so much better and so much sort of it's very freeing like I feel like I can speak to that clinician freely and not have to worry about anything going sort of wrong and they do feel like allies and it is just safer. Something I've heard from some of my queer friends is that particularly when it comes to pronouns that making like correcting yourself the second you make it do you do it wrong without imploring for forgiveness or, or or making a big drama of it that that can lift a burden and minimize whatever harm is done by making the mistake in the first place that a really quick apology and then simply moving on to show that you're you're making the effort you want to do right by that person does that resonate with your experiences Callum and Eli yeah I think for me that really does just sort of I've been in situations where doctors have been like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I got your pronouns wrong. And I'm just like, 
You can end up feeling like you have to comfort on. them, yeah. right? You can end up feeling like you have to yeah. reassure them. Like, it's you okay, you're not a bad person. <laughs> and I think, I think one situation, it was a therapist's appointment, and I just sat there and was like, this is a bit awkward, but everything's okay. Don't need to say sorry, it's all good. <laughs> But whereas, like, some doctors, they said it once, I think, like, wrong once in the past or so, and it just quickly moved on, and I was like, okay, cool, we're not even mentioning that, that's great. And I'd rather not mention it, you know? Like, to just move on quickly is great. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's no, like, your clinician does not need to make you feel like your pronouns are a burden, because they're not. It's it's something we can practice and and make a habit, and, and that's joy and privilege to do as a clinician serving your patients right for sure so uh, the way I think of it is you know when you go and see a patient and you get something wrong you ask them you know you get their age wrong for example all you do is say oh sorry 66 or whatever it was that you meant and then you carry on the conversation so it then doesn't make any sense to make a big fuss about someone's queerness and this is um, another friend of mine, I, I tweeted this after the last episode when they said being weird about queerness is unprofessional, not being queer itself. And I think this sort of goes back to it as if you make a big fuss about it and make everyone uncomfortable, that's not best practice. Yeah. But if you just apologise and crack on, you know, then it's much better, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I think the other thing which we should address from that is we talk a lot about this burden. And so often we put the burden on the minority to educate and to support themselves and to protect themselves. But actually, we are the healthcare professional in that scenario. We are the person with all the power and all the privileges. So why do we then get to put that on a minority and say, okay, well, you know, you've got to stand up for yourself here in this environment where it's alien to you. It could be very scary. You might not know what's going on. It's a balance, isn't it? Because our medical schools teach... Sorry, that might sound like I'm immediately contradicting you. This will make sense in a moment. Sorry, sorry, Callum. Uh, like, in, as in, in, in medical school, we're taught so much to in our communication skills to evoke the patient's experience. And so it may seem like in this case that it is uh, in line with that when in fact it is placing a huge burden and demanding a lot of vulnerability and also education in a, in a situation where a patient is already like in the position of uh, vulnerability. Um, and this is the case where clinicians need to have the expertise, you know, of, of healthcare needs, of, of, of common challenges, so that when, if they do need to ask questions about patient experience, they can ask the ones that get to the root of what is unique to the person in front of you, not to the, not to the basic stuff you can read online about how to be uh, a good physician for people who are trans, for example. We'll discuss a little bit more about being bystanders to discrimination, but that will be right after this. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. 
Okay, so we've discussed a little bit about what allyship actually is and how we can be a good ally for people in different settings. So something I just wanted to pick up on is we were just talking then about if you make a mistake with someone else's pronouns, but what about if you notice someone else in the room make a mistake? How should we be reacting to that? Should we be correcting them in the exact same way that we would correct ourselves with like the advice that Laura just gave? So... I think when you're a medical student, it can be very scary to correct a consultant. And I yeah. and um, I accept that when I'm the patient and also as a medical student. However, I think there's ways to do it, which can sort of place the seed in the mind of the person and show that you're trying to support the patient. So I have previously um, asked patients what their pronouns are, having noticed the consultant has got it wrong. And that allows the patient to then offer an example and make clear what their pronouns are for the consultant to pick up on. I mean, we've talked a lot about pronouns, but another really common example in healthcare is assuming the gender of someone's partner. Yes. Which can make someone feel unsafe uh, or unwilling to share that information with you. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, Lara, how would you react then if you were a medical student or a junior doctor and you noticed one of your seniors make a comment like that, like, like you said, assume the gender of someone's partner? If I'm completely honest, like it depends on the culture of the team as to yeah. uh, just, you know, talk, in terms of talking about power dynamics and being a med student, there's a limit to my courage. Right. Uh, and I, and whilst also recognising that's a lot less costly for me, the med student, to advocate on behalf of the patient for the pa- than for the patient to interject. Like I recognise that, but also recognise that I fail when my courage fails me. But assuming that there's a good like that there, I'm just envisioning a scenario in which there's like a, a consultant who I completely feel intimidated by that would be a difficult situation. I would hope to Mm. do better. But I think, for example, considering this kind of interjection or correction, being like correcting when someone's given the wrong age of the patient, it can be as low stakes in the sense that it is important to the healthcare of the patient to know the correct information about the patient and their loved ones. That's really important to their care. Uh, And it need not be a big deal to simply interject and say no uh not husband wife and just just add it uh for example it's not about having a fight on behalf of a patient because that's just uncomfortable for everyone involved it's it's exactly what you're saying about sort of that like we said earlier that low-key just subtly correct it and crack on because as a med student you're still not the most powerful person in that room i um just thought i'd chip in and say I think we should start normalising asking people if they have partners and what their partner's pronouns are because I think that might just save save a lot of, of, of work in the future. Let's just sprinkle that in to, yeah. to education and just sort of normalising this whole do you have a partner, what's your partner's pronouns? Well, that benefits everyone, not just yeah. queer people as well because if you have sort of, um, you know, someone who's just been through a divorce or something and you just assume they've got a partner, that could be quite upsetting. If you just assume they have support systems at home, you're not going to be able to provide them with the most care which they need. So it's not even just a good queer thing to do. It's just a good thing to do. Completely. So Eli, how would you um, suggest to our listeners, how, what sort of tips would you give them to be a good ally for their patients? So trans-wise, just don't expect me to be the expert um, as a trans person. I am seeking your help, I'm not seeking to become your professor magically in the room for a 10 minute appointment. 
eventually at some point. Um, but also, pronouns are great. Put pronouns in your bios, put pronouns in your emails. Pronouns are great, but we need to go more, like, we need to do more than just pronouns. We need to start sort of having respectful resources and, and doing research around trans people because Google is a great place to start and there is a lot on Google now that, that really is just educational facts around trans people and there are so many organisations to get in touch with, especially around trans healthcare and stuff. Um, and if you do see something wrong, like we've just discussed and, and someone does say um, the wrong pronouns, just slowly bring it up, be like, hey, this person's pronouns is he, him, she, her, they, them. Um, and then moving on to the HIV bit, again with the whole I'm not the expert because the amount of times um, I've been with like my doctors or something and they've been like can you even go on this medicine does it interact and I have to sit there and be like here's a website you can do it yourself <laughs> um, and I think just don't make assumptions about that person based on the don't judge a book by its cover don't base a person on what's just in front of you because we are so much more than our diagnoses the labels we're given um our backgrounds we are individuals and we need to be seen as individuals um and that's probably the best advice i can give is to just don't judge a book by its cover i think that make assumptions about people yeah i think there's a really good point in there of not judging a book by its cover there's a lot of stigma around HIV and there's a lot of assumptions made when someone has HIV. And I think if you catch yourself thinking that or that enters your head, you need to call yourself out on it. And you need to say specifically, oh, I've had this thought, not not to the patient, just say it to yourself. <laughs> I've, had, <laughs> I've had this thought. This was, you know, an incorrect assumption. I need to work on that. I need to stop doing that. Because once you like sort of visualize that you've made an assumption or, or you've believed in some of that stigma almost, you can start biases, working on it. right? Yeah. And mm. I think what Eli was saying is so important and we touched on it briefly in our last episode about how in medicine we are sort of taught pattern recognition, which really, really enforces these stereotypes because we, of course, are aware of patients as a human being rather than as a list of symptoms or as their diagnoses. But in order to pass multiple choice exam questions, you're taught to spot things by what the typical patient would look like, right? So mm. I think that makes it 10 times more important for us to be aware of the biases when it comes to applying those to real life people. And it's the typical exam patient. It's not necessarily the typical real life person anyway. Completely. completely. I just definitely agree we need to do more about our biases and, and working on those more systemically which I reckon will take quite some time for that to make changes. But it's definitely needed. And we definitely need, especially medical students, to really be just that, the proper allies in coming forward and being like, no, we want change and we want it here as medical students yeah. so that we can implement it further into healthcare. Um, yeah. I mean, it's important for us to open up these conversations now, right? Because hopefully in however many years time we will be the, the doctors the consultants and hopefully if we implement the change now or at least start the conversations even if it's on an individual level it will slowly grow to become a systemic change and that's something which i think even if you're not queer is actually more important for you to do because like we said earlier otherwise you're just putting that burden back on queer people which is why it's so amazing that we have you know um laura here to talk about this from a cisgender perspective as someone who's going to advocate on other people's behalf because they're the ones who have 
the exposure and the power, and there's a lot more of them. <laughs> We're quite a minority, the queer, queer medical student community. <laughs> I think a really good example of this, for example, is the is some of the stuff uh, you talked about in the last episode, actually, Callum uh, or and Nikki. Uh, perhaps it was the guest uh, who brought it up about the systemic barriers that queer people face in healthcare. An example of which is the sort of absolute admin computer difficulty of inviting trans men for essential cervical screening. That is a complete total healthcare issue and, and something that is you know something that we need to recognize before it's a problem in our own practice and secondly there's also an extent to which being just being aware of the wider social things that are going on the various prejudices and oppressions that queer people face is a really important aspect of healthcare as well an example at the moment being that conversion therapy is still not banned which you also discussed a bit on the last episode you know that's something that isn't absolutely a healthcare issue. It's a it's a barrier to to healthcare, and these are aspects of allyship that are outside of the individual doctor patient interaction, but are something that are important to our healthcare practice more widely. Yeah, and I guess the first step to all of that is to be aware of these things. I mean, if you're listening and you were surprised at any of the things that Lara just said, I would recommend you go back and listen to the episode that we that came out the other week go and do some research i don't know if callum eli either of you have got any resources to recommend because we can link those in the description so stonewall have a really good lgbt health in britain um report which you can go and read if you want to learn about the inequalities and learn about um you know how many so it's i think is one in seven lgbtq plus patients simply just don't go to the doctor out of fear of discrimination that's so important to know isn't it and to you know motivate us to do everything we can to make it a safe space to take every interaction as an opportunity to earn someone's trust in the healthcare system. Um, another resource, is if, uh, particularly for US listeners, might be PFLAG. They've also got like a chunky PDF for how to be an ally in healthcare. A bit more American. I could probably recommend 56T, which is 5016 Street's trans sort of support time. I think it's on like a Wednesday. But 5060 Street always have great resources anyway. And um, 5060 have more trans-focused ones. And then there is Clinic U, which is a holistic trans healthcare, well-being um, and sexual health service, which is also amazing. So I definitely would recommend those two. And they do have some great sort of information and, and stuff on how to just be supportive and be an ally and thank you if all three of you make sure you send me those links i'll pop them in the episode description so for any of our listeners there's lots of places for you to get started in terms of educating ourselves a friend of mine did uh was heavily involved in an lgbt teaching day of which like a big focus was bringing in people who are lgbt so that medical students could meet them and have sit down conversations with them in small groups like super generous of those people to do that for us um but because my friend was involved in organising the day, she also saw all the data collected about the pre and post surveys. And one thing she found from that is that medical students are, before this teaching day, were very, one, one area where they totally lacked confidence was about what was okay to say and what's not okay to say. And con- concern about the vocabulary and concern about the sort of, like, these, these areas where they're just not confident about talking about healthcare that is specific to the needs of LGBT people. 
So um, that's something, if that's you as a listener or, or Nikki and myself, like that, that's something we can uh, recognise and we can do something about. We don't have to wait for a day in the medical school curriculum to turn up to start doing that. We can start accessing resources um, on, you know, it's because of how much is available online, we're no longer like need to have uh, a very close queer friend to be able to teach us everything you know we can we can do that work ourselves um and and gain that confidence um outside of the curriculum too and that's a great definition right there of an ally someone who's reflected on something they've realized they're lacking a bit of knowledge but they want to improve and support people and they've gone out and done some research and they've improved if that's how you want to summarize being an ally i think that's a pretty good way to do it So when we are doctors or medical students, we don't only need to look out for our patients, but also for our colleagues or our peers too. So Callum caught up with Duncan Shrewsbury, a GP in Brighton and a senior lecturer at Brighton Sussex Medical School, where he helps run clinical practice um, in the community for years one and two. And Callum asked, what makes a good ally? So I think rather than thinking about some of the traits that might make an ally good, I think I would like to focus on probably the underlying intention of of supporting and uh, nurturing change and growth. And then probably what's most important is what makes an ally safe, both in terms of for themselves. I mean, it can be quite um, psychologically challenging to step in in certain situations. Um, what, so what makes that um, ally safe for themselves, but also safe for the community for which they are um, being an ally. But I think the, the, the key traits that I would look for are a positive intention to support and be nurturing um, towards an individual community and striving towards nudging things in a positive direction where growth can happen and safety, um, choosing a, a path that is both psychologically safe but also Also, unfortunately, there are times where we do need to consider physical safety as well. And what sort of times are you thinking as an ally when you should act or when you should say something or what sort of scenarios are we talking about? Generally speaking, we we talk about um, the opportunity to affect everyday interactions such as microaggressions where there may be the opportunity there to support learning and development of a wider community. You, you might call the, 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 the person who transgresses the, the aggressor or the microaggressor, um, but that, that may be a potential opportunity there to support their learning and growth so that um, those sorts of mistakes and errors or transgressions are not made um, in, repeatedly. But equally, an ally may be somebody who not necessarily jumps in the opportunity to uh, to educate and uh, and address the aggressor, but actually may be somebody who um, looks at supporting the person on the receiving end of that. And that can be as simple as checking in with them afterwards, saying, "You know, I just I just noticed that thing in the corridor earlier on, and I know it's none of my business, but are you all right? That that came across a bit odd to me." And just simple little things like that can have a really positive Im- impact on on how somebody feels after having gone through something like that. But counter to that, you also have the, the flagrant transgressions where you're talking about outright prejudice, prejudicial behaviour or discriminatory behaviour, all the way through to something that could be perceived as abusive. 
and that's a very different kettle of fish um, and the sort of the stakes are a little bit higher and the considerations around safety are even more important there. And in those sort of situations, rather than addressing the, the transgressor, it might be necessary to cause a sort of distraction, slip into the conversation and change tack, change direction of it, giving the opportunity for, for tensions to diffuse and for people to, to um, make an exit, essentially. Um, and especially, you know, thinking about the sort of the support aspect of things after an interaction like that to the person on the receiving end of it generally um, obviously has a, a much, much more significant role. In those sort of situations, when thinking about trying to address it, it might be more relevant to think about after-the-fact opportunities, formal feedback um, structures, either within the institution or external to that if necessary, and looking at how um, how that might invoke certain um, policy structures and things like that. So you just sort of touched on it a bit on the end there. How would a you know a medical student or a junior doctor go about creating that sort of supportive environment? You know, before before they've even sort of faced any abuse or faced any difficulties. Yeah, that's a very good question, and it's something that we can see quite nicely with, for example, the LGBT community. Allies have uh, have developed visibility through certain tokens of allyship and I think we've seen really wonderful initiatives such as the rainbow pin badge that demonstrate that so having a visibility to allyship is really quite helpful and and that implies the positive intention that sits behind the bit the the badge or the lanyard or or the other token of allyship and so hopefully with that intention would come um, some knowledge, awareness and ability to to connect with somebody uh, within the community and offer that sort of support. So there's that visibility element. Then there's also um, the opportunity to affect things at a either group or uh, organisational level. For example, in a small group, when you get together at the beginning of term or, or the year, there's usually a good opportunity to set ground rules. And within setting ground rules, you might um, find it helpful to explore things such as people's preferred pronouns and say that, you know, it's really important to me that we respect and value those in this group and in this small group setting. I try to um, I try to signal that that's important to me, for example, by including that in my email signature. And it may seem quite little and small to some, but I know that to to others that can make quite a, a difference. I know that to my patients, knowing that I do that makes a difference to them. And then thinking about how things might be nudged in a more positive direction at an organisational level. And then I suppose to wrap up, if, if someone's, you know, they've listened to this episode and they've been inspired to improve their allyship, where do you suggest they go to learn a bit and to start? Well, I mean, I, I think probably the first place is to um, reach out to to the, your peers, to your friends, people who you may know or identify as belonging to communities for which you wish to develop your your awareness, your knowledge, your skills, and starting conversations with them. Perhaps um, thinking about how you can offer support or provide support in certain situations, not necessarily asking for a catalogue of the most horrendous experiences that they've had, but perhaps starting a conversation about saying, I've seen this once and it made me wonder that and I really want to 
be in a better situation to provide support next time. Um, have you got any ideas about that? And also perhaps looking at, at the opportunities to develop some of your communication skills um, around um, how you might potentially either step in in those sort of situations or provide feedback around those sort of situations. Callum, let's start with you. When you were doing that interview, what sort of things um, went through your head? What were your reflections on your chat with Duncan? So I think some of it is acknowledging that as students, we have a limited power we, to make sort of those institutional changes. But I think we can also sort of prompt the institution into doing that sort of thing. So, you know, I want to see my institution state they don't tolerate queer phobia or racism or ableism. And I want to see that in writing. And if that's not there, I can ask my institution to provide that and say, OK, well, what are your procedures for dealing with this? So I know who to go to if that happens. And that, as a student, makes the institution think about, oh, actually, do we have one of these? What are we doing about it? The other things you can do, you could go to your faculty, you could propose like a, a, an EDI student committee. If they don't have one, you can suggest setting one up. And I think it's about, well, how do we as students take our intentions, go to the faculties and say, this is what we're interested in, we want this to happen, and then, you know, encourage them to do that because the intentions of them is there to do it. I completely agree with you. Laura, what were your thoughts when you were listening back to that? Reflecting on this idea of starting conversations with your friends and learning from people in your life and I appreciate Duncan saying this my understanding is that he's part of the LGBT community himself so that's a very kind of generous thing for him to say but also I know from my pals that this can be very costly and I also think it's something that became apparent last year in 2020 when suddenly a lot of white people were super keen on anti-racism and getting started and from people I follow on Twitter, I can see that that results in a lot of people being completely exhausted of having to explain the basics over and over again. And so I would say, let your pals know that you're starting out on learning more, but also be very careful with their energy and their resources for educating you, particularly if you love them as pals. You know, if you do want to ask questions, do everything in your power to make sure that it's because you want to understand them better for the sake of your friendship and deepening your friendship but that there's no obligation for them to share anything with you for you to be friends and to support them and I think something that's helped me a lot has been Twitter I know there'll be loads of listeners who are like who even cares about Twitter what an irrelevant <laughs> place but this is a great place where you can <laughs> follow people who are already saying things you are not asking anyone to do more than what they're already doing yeah. and you can follow people who are not like yourself people who are who have completely different takes and I've learned a lot about healthcare experiences from there and common mistakes that cis straight people make in healthcare settings and I'm trying to think of whether there's resource, a resource like this for people who aren't on Twitter but I'm not sure that I know of a place where you can see the day-to-day -day struggles but also joys of uh, minority groups who, who do face challenges in the world as it currently is like I think it's yeah I don't know if you guys know of anywhere that kind of might do that as well. No, Everyone's the shaking one. their heads. Everyone <laughs> should be on Twitter. <laughs> but thank yeah. you for sharing that, Laura. I think that was really important to be aware of sort of what you were saying, like not exhausting your friends by sort of badgering people and not expecting people to explain things to you just because they are part of a community. Like it doesn't 
mean that you are entitled to that conversation with them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Eli, I noticed you sort of nodding along there as Lara was speaking. What were your thoughts? Just, um, so I do use Twitter, slightly addicted to Twitter. Mm. And I am on on the medical side of Twitter. So I do get to see the ins and outs of everything that goes on in a doctor's life. And it's always either quite (laughs) funny or quite sad. Um, Mm. But I think the the important thing a lot of people, I think, forget to do when it comes to allyship is to utilise social media and follow people who aren't, the usual people you would follow mm. and really broaden your horizons and be open and and learn from people without having to constantly ask them questions um because i know like i get the occasional message on twitter where someone's been like i've learned so much from your account and i'm like i don't, don't tweet much interesting but <laughs> cool great um and i think there is a power in in broadening your horizons and not being afraid to slip up and not being afraid yeah. to ask the the questions you want to ask um mm. and and not being afraid to sound like you should know the answer and if the question does sound like you should know the answer and you don't know the answer then ask the question to find out the answer yeah i think as a queer person if i'm speaking to someone and they say uh you know for example if you want to learn about how queer people in the NHS feel, BMA and GLAD did a study in 2016. You can see a survey about it. You can see that 70% reported homophobic or biphobic abuse in the workplace. If I see someone's done that research, I am so much more likely to want to engage and want to help them because I see they've put in the foundations of the effort. They've not just come to me and said, oh, what's it like being a queer person in the NHS? They said, look, I've read this. It really shocked me. I want to learn mm. more. I'm so much more likely to have a chat with you about that because I can feed off the energy you've put into that. It's not just tiring for me to have to go through it again and again. That's a really interesting point, actually. Another thought I had based off the interview you did with Duncan, Callum, thank you so much for doing that, was that he gave a few tips of how to advocate in the workplace and one was to sort of be explicit about use of pronouns whenever you're starting something new. And this made me think of someone, a junior doctor I know who's like a a role model to me in terms of allyship. She's a gay woman who wears a she-her pronoun badge at work. She's cisgendered, but this allows, it's a conversation starter. And she said that there's countless times when different members of staff have asked her, what's that badge? Is that, is that your town of origin or some other like amusing mistake like that, which gives her an opportunity to say, oh, these are my pronouns. <laughs> You've segued perfectly into what my next question was going to be about sort of being an ally in the workplace and sort of especially for our colleagues or our peers. And I was going to ask if any of you have got any experiences that you wanted to share of very supportive work environments that you've seen or perhaps environments that you had wished were more supportive. I think it's a bit unfortunate. Most of my experiences are, the ones which I remember tend to be the negative ones. So I've been in, you know, just offices before and there was a rainbow poster on the wall and it was completely unrelated to queerness. It was about midwives. And someone walked in and said they'd had enough of this touchy-feely gay and then an expletive. And no one in the room said anything. And I was like a third-year medical student at this point, sat there like, oh, okay. So I think if... If you want to make your workplace more supportive, if you hear something like that, you need to put your hand up and say, oh, I don't think that's appropriate. Because that's quite a scary thing, quite yeah. a vulnerable thing for me to sit there and then be surrounded by all these people for the rest of the year. Yeah. So I think just calling stuff out when you see it, if it's safe for you to do so, it, that's your first step. Or coming up to me afterwards and saying, 
How would you like to go about reporting that? Would you like to do anything about that? Do you just want to talk about that? Yeah. If you don't feel safe to say, say anything in the room. Because actually, maybe I don't know how to report it. Maybe I'm not confident enough to report it. And having someone there to help me, that's a really good thing which you could have done. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story, Callum. Laura, Eli, what about either of you? Have you noticed anything good or bad in any sort of workplace environment that we might be able to apply to, like listeners might be able to apply to help improve their work environments? Can I echo the the badges, badges thing? Um, yeah, so I was quite an ill kid growing up um, and I was in and out of hospital for a variety of things and I'd always see lanyards with badges on them and I'd always think, that's so cool, what does that badge mean? What does that badge mean? And I don't think anyone grows out of that stage of wanting to know what all the badges mean. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, there is the rainbow badge and I know there's rainbow lanyards now, right? Yeah. Beautifully modelled yeah. by Callum right now. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately the listeners can't see, but Callum is wearing one. Um, and I know that there's there's other ways to put badges on. I think put pronouns where you can, especially whilst we're wearing masks in, in mm. hospital or clinical environments. Because just having pronouns generally could now help anyone because no one is defined by their hairstyle. But when you've got a mask on, it gets a lot harder for anyone to to work anything out. Um, so <laughs> pronouns are everything. And just having like even just a little trans flag to be like, oh, I'm here. You could talk to me about this, which is a step up from the pronouns, really. Yeah, I think something about badges and symbolism is, is really great and really important. And I know that when I see see doctors and nurses and, and people wrapping the little the little pride flag, I'm always like, yeah, cool, safe space. I can trust this person. I think the other thing you can do in the workplace is think about your language. So if you're going to start a conversation with me just casually about my weekend and you say, oh, um, you know, what did you get up to with your girlfriend, which has happened... I'm either put in the position to come out to you about the fact that I have a boyfriend or I'm put in a position to lie to you and then everything feels very uncomfortable. Whereas all we actually, you have to say in that conversation was, did you do anything nice with your partner? Or maybe just, did you do anything nice and allow me to offer that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's uh, by making assumptions, you set up a barrier for someone to come out. Whereas if you don't make any assumptions the barriers are so low that it can just come up casually and and not be a an ordeal (laughs) i really like the whole no assumptions thing and i think i've definitely seen well in the sort of hiv clinic i go to my doctors and nurses there tend to go for a no assumptions sort of feel at the moment and it's been great um and i i feel like I don't have to constantly explain myself to them and, and, and it's nice to just have, it's very relaxed. Sets a very more relaxing environment, it's, yeah. So we know that um, fewer than half of queer people in the NHS feel it's an, it's an environment which encourages openness. And I think if you, if you enter with that knowledge and think, okay, well, actually, what am I doing to contribute to that and reflect on those actions and reflect on the language you use and the presumptions you make, you can, we can start bringing up where actually people can talk about their sexual orientation or they can talk about their gender identity and they don't feel pressured to lie or to have to come out every time the conversation comes up. Yeah, I think that is a wonderful takeaway message for today's episode because that's all we've got time for on Sharp Scratch today. 
if you'd like to hear more from us please do subscribe to sharp scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks time you'll be notified of our next episode while you do wait for the next one do check us out on social media we're bmj student on twitter facebook and instagram let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag sharp scratch i'd love to hear your ideas for what you think we should cover later on in the season it's also really helpful to us if you can leave us a rating and a review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps other students find the show until then bye from us Bye-bye. bye bye